This week on Life and Faith. They gave us the Bible and told us to close our eyes and pray. Then we opened our eyes, we had the Bible, and they had the land. The Enlightenment is about the great individual. I get this cold feeling in my chest, my hands go sweaty, and it's decision time. Social media makes us see ourselves as larger than we are. How can I convince myself I'm a worthy person? Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX, I'm Simon Smart. Those of us who live in Australia have grown up used to filling in government forms that include a question, are you of Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander heritage? And we either do or don't tick that box. But I'm struck by the fact that very few of us have had anything at all to do with people from the Torres Strait. You might even be a bit vague on where that is. So just to remind you, there's an archipelago of at least 270 small islands in the Torres Strait. So we're talking far north Queensland, Australia. So far north that you're getting a plane from Cairns, which seems very far north to southerners. And then boats of various sizes, and it's, well anyway, it's, it's a long way. Thursday Island is one of the better known islands there, and it's about 40 kilometres north of Cape York Peninsula. My guest today is born and bred in the Torres Strait. He now lives on Thursday Island, but on the island he grew up on, Marbiag, on a clear day, looking out across the water to the north, he could see people going about their business in New Guinea. Well, we're going to hear about that part of the world today. Gabrielle Barney is a community leader with a long family history as leaders in the Torres Strait. He's also a pastor. And when he was in Sydney for, among other things, an event looking at Indigenous spirituality and Christianity, I grabbed him for a chat. And to begin with, I wanted to know about Gabriel's growing up in that part of the world. It was quite fun, actually, growing up. Um, just thinking back, um, uh, most of our uh, lifestyle centered around being out in the water, out in the sea, uh, fishing uh, or hunting, and um, also out on the reefs diving for fish, but also just walking around, um, collecting food for us and seafood and turning over rocks and looking for, you know, crabs and or mud crabs. So really centered around uh, the sea and, and the waters. But it was, a, it was a very good environment. Like we were growing up in, um, I think it was, everything was centered around family. You described to me earlier, we were chatting about your home and what you experienced there with a lot of people living together. Yes, uh, we grew up in a, well, what you would, I think, refer to today as uh, overcrowding. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to us, that was like a normal, <laughs> uh, normal way of living, normal way of life. It was a very safe and happy environment. And we would have about 20 to 25 people uh, living in two or three bedroom houses. The housing was very difficult back then. And sleeping on the floors, just on mats, no mattresses, no beds. Everybody sleeping in the lounge area or the kitchen area. You know, I still remember at nights, if you want to drink a water, you tiptoe around bodies laying on the floor and get to the sink. And then, but it was a very happy environment. Mm. Uh, like looking back now and just beginning to understand the, our socioeconomic uh, conditions that we were in. But it was actually, we didn't notice that. 
It was just uh, growing up together, sleeping together, eating together, and having fun. But the, the family really provided that uh, shelter for us. Yes, it was a happy, sort of mm. warm community yes, experience. Yeah. It's a vastly different environment in places like big cities like oh, we're yes. in now. Mm. Um, what was it like for you to experience these sorts of environments in comparison to how you'd grown up? Oh, yeah, no, that was very... Um, what would you say, especially in Cairns, which would be our closest to uh, a city, (laughs) a big town. uh, You know, it did seem foreign, and you did seem a bit lost, but uh, meeting people again uh, that you know from uh, up where you come from, uh, that sort of uh, uh, helped with the stress levels and Mm -hmm. finding out where you were and where you were going, but very different environment as compared to up there. Coming down Brisbane, Brisbane way, Sydney way, it became very, very different. You know, we smile a lot to people. We wave, we shake hands, we make personal contact, we make eye contact. That was something that I didn't receive when I ventured into the cities. I'd be looking over at somebody trying to say hi, and but everybody would just be in their own uh, space and yeah. Up there in Tia, you know, on Thursday Island, you know everybody. Growing up and, you know, you're driving a car around the island, you know, you wave at every car going past and everybody on the sidewalk. My first time driving in Cairns, I started to wave at every car going past and people were looking <laughs> were at me back. silly and they were saying, who was that? <laughs> and I sort of realized, no, this is not the world. <laughs> Tell us about totems. Now, what are they? What's your totem? And how do totems function in the culture of your people? Totems are are very central to our social structures. The word totem, you know, as we use it today now, but it's probably a word from somewhere around North America, uh, and and we have our our language words for that. uh, Yes, what would it be in your uh, language? It's it's our buayaugad or buayurui. So, uh, and that's associated with um, the clan the kinship system uh, or the kinship structure. Elders uh, in each particular group, they are responsible for that and making sure that uh, the clan understands its totems, uh, the, the genealogies, the relationships. So the totems determine inter-clan relationships, uh, marriages, but also uh, defining uh, boundary lines, territories, which clan is responsible not only for land, uh, but the reefs and the waters. Mm. So all of that sits under a particular totem group. On my community, we have uh, four main totems, which is the crocodile. That's my totem. The crocodile is a major totem of a major tribe. Our tribe is Wagadagam, Kaibuai. And we have three clans along at Mabiag. And it's the Sipangur clan uh, at Gamu. Their totem is the shovel-nosed shark, mm-hmm. we call Kaigas. In the center of the island, we have Maid, the Maid Buai, which is um, the snake clan, Taub. And towards the east, we have uh, Panai, Panai Buai, and, and that's, uh, their totem is the crocodile. So, yes. But un- under those, there are many other subtotems from our intermarriages and clan relationships to Papua New Guinea in the north and to the mainland, uh, to the south. Eh? 
So they function as a sort of symbolically represent your people, your yes. clan, but also as a sort of social structures. Yes, and um, our totems are not uh, objects of worship. They uh, are mainly our source of uh, unity, uh, our communion, and strength, uh, solidarity of tribes and clans mm. uh, sharing those totems. And our festivals, harvest festivals, and, and our gatherings, seasonal gatherings, are all under those totems. Um, they bring us together. Tell me about what it looked like for your people to first encounter Europeans. There were a lot of um, repercussions, serious repercussions, consequences for your people. Can you explain what some of those were? Uh, the big one, if we look at uh, cultures, we really looking at worldviews, eh? different worldviews. So that's where the actual, uh, that clash of worldviews, you know, when we hear today about uh, dispossession or displacement of structures, you know, it was all of that, especially our kinship structure and our social structures, a big impact on that. And that was our main uh, mode of survival and everything about young people growing up, children, elders, and that's where it actually had that impact in, in um, dismantling those and our, our governance structures of how we governed ourselves. And, so how did, it, and, how did that happen? So how were those things dismantled? Well, first of all, everything that we did as part of our culture from the Christian perspective was called pagan. Yeah. So they had to dismantle our uh, sacred meeting places where we met, uh, our social gatherings. They put in curfews uh, together with the, or with the government and the missions working together uh, where we weren't uh, allowed to go beyond you know, a certain time in our communities. And our, a lot of our social lifestyle was sort of, um, well, our lives were regulated, I guess, and controlled. We were told what to do, what not to do, we, you know, even relocated. You can't live here anymore. You have to live at a certain location. Uh, and in the middle of all of that, um, the things that mattered to us, like our artifacts, our masks, our ceremonial things, that was all taken away and seen as pagan will. They said they were going to burn them, but uh, later we discovered that they were in museums halfway across the world. Or <laughs> <coughs> have you been able to get any back? We, we're still in the process. Some have come back a little bit, but uh, uh, at the artifacts, as well as human remains. Mm-hmm. From my island alone, over 150 full-body remains are still over there, still negotiating to try to get them back to put them to rest. You talked about being forced out of particular areas where your people lived. Yep. Presumably with such attachment to land mm-hmm. and waterways, this would have been a very traumatic thing. Yes, it was. A lot of emotions Uh, when people are being moved, you you know, it's documented as well that uh, our people are crying and moving and packing up because they were moving away from uh, their land. And See, I can only only relate to us up there that even though we were moved around, but we still remained in our environment on on the island. You know, I really feel for uh, families on the mainland here during that time where they were really... Taken a taken, long way taken from a there. long way away. Land, yeah. Yes. Well, tell me some of the kind of lasting negative impacts of European contact with your people. How, where do you see the the impact today 
in your area? The one impact that I'm really concerned about, it has to do with what I mentioned earlier about different worldviews. Yeah. So it's to do with the way our people think today. You know, sometimes in frustration I say, we have black skin, but we think like the white man. And the value systems, because two different worldviews with very different value systems. So today's uh, situation now, the impact has been our value system is not our own anymore, what we had before, especially in our social structures with the um, kinship systems and our clan systems. It's all come down to individual nuclear family thinking now, that thinking of individualism or individualistic thinking. Yes that it's, it's just you against the world, you know, just you, yourself, your family. And that's the big one. Mm. And uh, the practices that follow that, you know, has to do with that. And there's big concern, you know, people talk about the respect that existed or the relationships that existed before, but it's, it's all changed. And, and people are still living up there in our environment, but they think like somebody else uh, was mm. living down in Sydney. Now, you are a pastor. Yes. You've obviously embraced the Christian faith that came with Europeans. What did the missionaries bring when they came to Torres Strait Islands? Our introduction to Christianity in my island, Mabiag, and in my tribe, was that my ancestor, my great-great-great-grandfather, he was the last convert on the island because they were South Sea Islanders with the missionaries. They were able to influence um, the other clan groups. But our clan group, which is the major tribe of the crocodile, didn't really accept that message. So at night, one of the nights, they sent uh, the missionaries and the workers around to destroy my grandfather's gardens. And they did a good job in, you see, back then the garden was the main supermarket, yeah. uh, main source of uh, food. And then uh, he was very upset when he saw that everything was destroyed. And they told him that God had sent his angels during the night because God was angry with him for not uh, accepting what was being introduced. So he still didn't go along with them to where the village was relocated to because he was still at the back of the island. So they actually tied his hands up and his his legs uh, and they put a pole through, you know, uh, how you would carry a pig. And that's how they carried him uh, from where our village was to where they were going to relocate us to. He was the chief of uh, the major tribe. And you can only imagine, you know, what it looked like for people there and... Uh, so they brought him there and they actually dealt with him to make him become part of the changes there and here. Mm. So his son became part of the church. His son, my great-great-great-grandfather, he became a bellsman. And um, later on, they started to become uh, laymen and then priests. Now, that would make me turn away from... Yeah, Everything. I was going to say, it didn't feel <laughs> but, like a uh, very inviting. It's amazing that yeah. your family have anything yeah. to do with this. So, um, you know, I guess you're wondering now how I came to be where I am. And I, I am it, wondering it was, that. <laughs> it was, um, it's the message. You know, I always say, just I think to clear my mind up, but that's how God has been 
revealing himself to us now is um, it's the message that's sacred, but not the methods. We have become to make the methods sacred. And the message came, but it was wrapped in layers. If I may talk about Christianity a little bit yeah. from my understanding, yeah, that sure. uh, it, it was, a, I think, a, a Roman or European interpretation or Roman influence. Uh, it was very much packed in something else. And sometimes you do look that it's not the same as how it actually started from day one. And that was introduced to us. It wasn't what was started in day one uh, in the Book of Acts. But we were actually, our culture and our village life reflected what was happening in Acts chapter 1 and 2. Uh, wow. This is, this is the, the accounts of the early church. Yeah. And you feel like your Sharing culture the, shared. Yeah, yeah, looking right. after the widows, the mm. orphans, and breaking bread daily, listening to teaching through our initiation sites. Uh, preparing you for life and uh, social structures that enabled you, you know, like if you see the difference between our law, the L-O-R-E, Yawadan, we call it Yawadan or Sab, and if you see the L-A-W, it sort of sits on the end. If you do something wrong, you know, uh, you face the consequences. But our L-O-R-E, you are taught the consequences and uh, that prevents you from from doing it in from the first doing place. It, it's so ordered because uh, we didn't have fences, mm. we didn't have gates, uh, and you would just see a rock or a tree and you wouldn't, you can't cross over. That's how powerful that law is. But today we put our fences and people still jump fences. This is Life and Faith, and I'm speaking with Gabrielle Barney, who is a community leader and pastor in the Torres Strait. We've been talking about European contact and especially missionary contact with the people of the Torres Strait. And it's fascinating to me that Gabrielle feels he's able to distinguish between the message the Christian missionaries were bringing and the methods they used to do that. I think we've always had that. Um, I think every culture, every people... You know, there is that knowing now, you know, come to understand the Bible and to understand uh, God that he comes to us through his whole creation and everything is pointing towards him. Mm. And whatever we do, even if it's our totems, we know that they point towards something, you know, I guess like the cross, which is a Roman symbol of punishment and death. But that's a form of totem as well because it points to something, points to someone. Wow. You know, and in that light, you can begin to understand more about the message uh, of hope of a creator and his relationship with his creation, you know. So that we embrace Christianity up there because there were a lot of similarities between our culture and the laws that we practiced together with the Christian message, you know, uh, similar to the commandments, we had our commandments as well, uh, our religious practices. Uh, We had our order of priesthood and how we practice ceremonies. So it was embraced up there, even though the way it was presented uh, was presented from a particular worldview. And I think sometimes that's why they call it light, because we were darkness. Well, you probably can say darkness as in sin and separation from God, but... But there's that uh, colonial uh, thing of behind it that, you know, uncivilized and civilized. Yeah. But we were very civilized. And the light that happened, 
uh, in Genesis 1, let there be light, it happened. And then uh, the light that Jesus brought into the world when he came, I am the light of the world, that happened as well. So this light is sort of in the shadow of those lights. <laughs> Sometimes people um, see the arrival of European culture and Christianity gets you know caught up in that. Yeah. And they say it's imposed on uh, indigenous people mm-hmm. in a way that's sort of unrelentingly negative. Mm-hmm. You have a bit of a different perspective on that, obviously. Okay. You've embraced yeah. it yeah. as well as recognised some of the failings in Mm -hmm. the delivery. Yes. So what do you say to people who think it was just terrible and kind of an imposition? When I speak to people, and, you know, maybe there's a general feel up there as well, there has to be hope in the end. You can't just talk about gloom and doom and Mm. and nothing at the end of the tunnel. There is that other side where, you know, uh, the message of the gospel, but even things like, you know, we had inter-island warfares before, you know, when people would break trade uh, agreements and trade routes, you had a very bloody wars, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, so the coming of the missionaries, you know, it helped in that way as well in, in settling that down a little bit. But we always look at, from our perspective, I guess, as, as islands, we always look at the side that builds us up and, and gives us hope. Yes. You know, I think we dwell on that more. We are a quiet people, you know. Sometimes people uh, over the years have referred to us as the, the, the silent people. We don't talk much uh, as Torres Islanders. We don't protest. You don't see us protesting much. We, we may join with our Aboriginal brothers and sisters, but our strength is, is our hands. It's the work that we do. Our work speaks for us. And despite those conditions and, you know, imposing all this this new Western uh, lifestyle and, and way of life. But we were still able to work in there, you know, even before the referendum in 1967, we did a lot of stuff that helped the country. What, what could have been done better when you think of the way the missionaries came and brought their message? What could they have done differently? One of the main things would be to, um, to listen, I guess, yeah, to the people. That would have been a good start and then probably would have found out they had more in common than, you know, and how we can share new ideas or new ways of, you know, uh, of the changes that were introduced. But uh, I think first of all to listen to, to the people because there is a lot of knowledge. There's a lot of wisdom that exists in, I suppose, cultures around the world based on survival, based on relationships, anything to do with society and life and I think that knowledge now today in 2023 or in the era of 2000 people are now going back to find out that knowledge now to help us you know and if only that was done back then it would have been you know. What do you think modern western cultures could learn now from your culture? I think um, values, valuing one another that communal thinking that we are all in this together rather than on our own and what's mine is mine what's yours is yours but to learn that no we share this life everyone's been put here for a purpose but we're all in this together and that's the thinking 
in the worldview of our culture. It, it's a village concept. It's based on togetherness. And there's something that when I did experience coming down further into the cities, uh, yeah, you can feel it, that it's not... Yeah, a lot of uh, um, atomized yes, cultures yeah. and people and... There's a lot of lonely people. Yes, no, I noticed that, yeah. Mm. Well, even in Christian circles, in Christianity, it's a very individualistic look, trying to interpret uh, the Bible, trying to understand God from that perspective is very difficult because everything in the Bible refers to a community. So the challenging us to, okay, let's let's be a community and then uh, you can see the difference. Tell me about what it's like for the Bible to come to your people. Because you've been able to distinguish the message from the people who brought it. Mm. Tell me about what that Bible brought to your community. Where will I start? Well, when it was presented, it was presented in a way where it was the final authority about God. And, you know, like God's message to us. But even at the time, and I think more so, even now, people did not really have access. It was only the priests and the people and the missionaries who came with it. But it's interesting because now I'm thinking about, I don't know whether it was one of the bishops from Africa who said that uh, they gave us the Bible and told us to close our eyes and pray. Then we opened our eyes, we had the Bible, and they had the land. So the thing is, <laughs> that, oh. that's running around in my mind here oh, at the back. <laughs> but... Uh, Oh, that's terrible. Uh, but it was given to us, and yeah. Despite I, that yeah. terrible, that's a terrible, yeah. oh gosh, that's awful. <laughs> yes. But you have somehow, I find it amazing actually, you're, you've somehow been able to embrace that Bible, even though yes. it came with a whole means to dispossess your yeah. people. It's just yeah. amazing actually. Yeah, no, I, oh, sometimes I get this, it's get emotional. Yeah. And it's God, love. I think that, I think that was the, sorry, that was the game changer. Uh, the love of God. Yeah, I think when you accept that message, in his purity, the message in his purity and his fullness, then you get to understand uh, that personal relationship that we talk about with God. That changes everything, yeah. And then uh, you begin to see things uh, differently. And, and I guess in the middle of all of that, what we're sharing here, you know, uh, I believe God came through. He managed to come through with all this, the stuff that was happening. Like, we know that the message, once it's received, it changes us on the inside, you know. It shouldn't change our clothes. It shouldn't change our culture but it changes you on the inside and it works its way out. Um, the system that was introduced to us is about changing us from the outside and making us look different on the outside. But uh, I think today uh, we still miss that message, finding its place uh, in the hearts of people. And that's where the difference comes from me. Gabriel, what do you think are the key needs of your people today? The main one would be for us to have some control over our lives again uh, and our environment. It won't be the same as before, but have some level of 
determining our our future and how we how we run our lives because up until this stage it has been run by somebody else and we run the the laws the policies which govern us are still not the way we would like things to be because i think we have the solutions of how we can move forward or we can become better as a people but uh, those solutions are not being properly heard like we've made some improvements uh, a lot of improvements but to have a greater say your control over our affairs yeah. I want to ask you about racism and ways in which you have experienced that have you and if so in what sense yes there is uh, you know just growing up you know looking for jobs our, our career all of that aspirations and things we've encountered a lot of that uh, even uh, being part of uh, the organizations that we worked for there was a lot of that uh, in there as well how you're treated mm. and uh, our information comes to you and you know, how you're valued actually to give an input into things well a few days ago traveling down to sydney when we boarded the aircraft uh, me and my wife so we had to go in through the back um, stairs here. Yeah. the others went through just depending on your seat your row and there was this big line and we were the only indigenous or islander people walking and there were all these uh, europeans and one of the flight attendants they were standing at the bottom of the steps and saying hello to everybody and then when we walked past her she stopped at and wanted to have a look at our tickets and then we showed them oh, okay you're okay then you can go then i stopped and i turned if she was going to do that to anybody else it was only to us and mm-hmm. i said you know i said oh is it the color of our skin why are you not stopping anybody else seeing uh, checking their tickets you know yeah. it is it's just there and i think people are not aware yeah. uh, that somehow we are a lesser uh, tell group. me what that makes at that moment what does that make you feel like well that anger i, I was angry uh, and my wife said you know i just leave it like i was just going to say i was going to start a whole big thing there but mm. then i said no I'll just walk away but uh, a lot of anger but then after settling down as we were entering the aircraft you know i just began to understand again that this is very uh, at our point you know uh, this country a people a yeah, long way to go yeah. mm. but also that's where we need to begin you know uh, as well to complement things that are happening you know uh, nationally and in the political uh, arena but that uh, individual personal connection is really important Yes. families and people houses neighborhoods yeah I want to ask you about the voice to parliament what is your view of that and how significant is it for people from the Torres Strait yes um, Torres Strait uh, communities I think are a big part of the Torres Strait community together with its uh, elected leaders have uh, shown their support for uh, the yes vote and to support the voice we feel very strongly that um, this is a step forward for us up there in our region in our nation of people to you know achieve uh, the outcomes that we we hoping for um, in having greater control you know over our lives and our affairs up there but the voice um, to me it makes sense i was in the delegation uh, going over to uh, uluru in 2017 and i wasn't sure myself what i was getting into you know uh, getting over there listening to all the discussions the debates 
the protests, the agreements, the disagreements, but just sitting back and observing all of that, the voice is the way forward. You know, we support treaty, and uh, our sovereignty has never been ceded. We are still, I am still a sovereign Wagadagam tribal man, and that will never change, you know, whether we vote yes or no, uh, or whether we have treaty or not, uh, you know, in our own right. Uh, we believe that our birthright that's been given to us uh, by God um, and making us custodians uh, of uh, the area that he's placed us in won't change, but a voice is an opportunity for us to be heard. And it is about policies and laws and influencing that. It is about a reform in our structures, the structures that govern us. And that's the one we're looking at um, changing because, as you know, structures empower, structures disempower. Structures can take away your hope and structures can give you hope. And I think we have better structures that once our voice is heard and these changes are made. Our life expectancy, our mobility, mortality rates, only then can we see some uh, change and improvement in all of that. But the voice, is, it'll provide a neutral place for us to sit on like a mat, our traditional woven mat, uh, where all of our diplomacy takes place, our trading and our discussions, our ceremony. But we sit on a place where we look to the past, but we have to look to the past together. And we look at where we are, and together we look of how we as Australians now can move forward. Because, as you would know, and everybody knows, we can't change what happened. But it's about a starting point for us as a nation. It's going to need a lot of healing, a lot of saying sorry, a lot of forgiveness. And people will have to cry together. And then, But once that happens at that place, and I believe God wants to bring us to that place and help us when we do get there and then we can move forward. The voice will help us in that. And uh, I know Queensland government has uh, commenced the work towards path to treaty and it's doing its own in a few other states. And that's just another big uh, step towards hope for our people. But I guess those discussions need to take place and voice of the parliament will be a very big help. This has been Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart. Thanks to Gabrielle Barney, who was in Sydney speaking at a panel event on Indigenous spirituality and Christianity. And that was part of the Gospel Conversations Conference. You can find them at gospelconversations.com. Please do send this episode on to someone you think might enjoy it and send any feedback you might have to podcast at publicchristianity.org. We couldn't do the show without him, thanks to our producer extraordinaire, the imperturbable Alan Douthwaite. Next week. Nothing that we had done had made any meaningful difference for these people. Now the Taliban were back in control of that country. And they were our partners. They were our friends. We weren't an invading force. We were there by invitation. And we had wanted to make a better Afghanistan with them. And the brutal reality was it wasn't going to be a better Afghanistan.